Section 9 of Stories in the Dark. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Dan Grzynski. Stories in the Dark by Barry Payne. The Undying Thing. 1. Up and down the oak-paneled dining hall of Mansteth, the master of the house walked restlessly. At formal intervals down the long, severe table were placed four silver candlesticks, but the light from these did not serve to illuminate the whole of the surroundings. It just touched the portrait of a fair-haired boy with a sad and wistful expression that hung at one end of the room. It sparkled on the lid of a silver tankard. As Sir Edric passed to and fro, it lit up his face and figure. It was a bold and resolute face, with a firm chin and passionate, dominant eyes. A bad past was written in the lines of it. And yet, every now and then there came over it a strange look of very anxious gentleness that gave it some resemblance to the portrait of the fair-haired boy. Sir Edric paused a moment before the portrait and surveyed it carefully. His strong brown hands locked behind him, his gigantic shoulders thrust a little forward. "'Ah, what I was,' he murmured to himself, "'what I was.' Once more he commenced pacing up and down. The candles mirrored in the polished wood of the table had burnt low. For hours Sir Edric had been waiting, listening intently for some sound from the room above or from the broad staircase outside. There had been sounds, the wailing of a woman, a quick abrupt voice, the moving of rapid feet, but for the last hour he had heard nothing. Quite suddenly he stopped and dropped on his knees against the table. God, I have never thought of thee, thou knowest that, thou knowest that by my devilish behavior and cruelty I did veritably murder Alice, my first wife albeit the physicians did maintain that she died of a decline, a wasting sickness. Thou knowest that all here in Mansteth do hate me, and that rightly. They say, too, that I am mad, but that they say not rightly, seeing that I know how wicked I am. I always knew it. But I never cared until I loved. Oh, God, I never cared." His fierce eyes opened for a minute, glared round the room, and closed again tightly. He went on. God, for myself I ask nothing. I make no bargaining with thee. Whatsoever punishment thou givest me to bear, I will bear it. Whatsoever thou givest me to do, I will do it. Whether thou killest Eve, or whether thou keepest her in life, and never have I loved but her, I will, from this night, be good. In due penitence will I receive the holy sacrament of thy body and blood, and my son, the one child that I had by Alice, I will fetch back again from Chalensee, where I kept him, in order that I might not look upon him. And I will be to him a father indeed, and very truth, and in all things, so far as in me lieth, I will make restitution and atonement. Whether thou hearest me or whether thou hearest me not, these things shall be. 
and for my prayer it is but this of thy loving kindness most merciful god be thou with eve and make her happy and after these great pains and perils of childbirth send her thy peace of thy loving kindness thy merciful loving kindness o god Perhaps the prayer that is offered when the time for praying is over is more terribly pathetic than any other, yet one might hesitate to say that this prayer was unanswered. Sir Edric rose to his feet. Once more he paced the room. There was a strange simplicity about him, the simplicity that scorns an incongruity. He felt that his lips and throat were parched and dry. He lifted the heavy silver tankard from the table and raised the lid, there was still a good draught of mulled wine in it, with the burnt toast cut heart-shaped floating on the top. To the health of Eve and her child, he said aloud, and drained it to the last drop. Click, click. As he put the tankard down, he heard distinctly two doors opened and shut quickly, one after the other, and then slowly down the stairs came a hesitating step. Sir Edric could bear the suspense no longer. He opened the dining-room door, and the dim light strayed out into the dark hall beyond. "'Denison,' he said in a low, sharp whisper, "'is that you?' "'Yes, yes, I am coming, Sir Edric.' A moment afterwards Dr. Denison entered the room. He was very pale. Perspiration streamed from his forehead. His cravat was disarranged. He was an old man, thin, with the air of proud humility. Sir Edric watched him narrowly. "'Then she is dead,' he said, with a quiet that Dr. Dennison had not expected. Twenty physicians, a hundred physicians, could not have saved her. Sir Edric, she was—he gave some details of medical interest. "'Dennison,' said Sir Edric, still speaking with common restraint, "'why do you seem thus indisposed and panic-stricken? You are a physician.' Have you never looked upon the face of death before? The soul of my wife is with God. Yes, murmured Dennison, a good woman, a perfect, saintly woman. And, Sir Edric went on, raising his eyes to the ceiling as though he could see through it, her body lies in great dignity and beauty upon the bed, and there is no horror in it. Why are you afraid? I do not fear death, Sir Edric. But your hands, they are not steady. You are evidently overcome. Does the child live? Yes, it lives. Another boy? A brother for young Edric, the child that Alice bore me? There, there is something wrong. I do not know what to do. I want you to come upstairs, and, Sir Edric, I must tell you, you will need your self-command. Denison, the hand of God is heavy upon me, but from this time forth until the day of my death I am submissive to it, and God send that that day may come quickly. I will follow you, and I will endure. He took one of the high silver candlesticks from the table and stepped towards the door. He strode quickly up the staircase, Dr. Dennison following a little way behind him. 
as sir edric waited at the top of the staircase he heard suddenly from the room before him a low cry he put down the candlestick on the floor and leaned back against the wall listening the cry came again a vibrating monotone ending in a growl dennison dennison his voice choked he could not go on yes said the doctor it is in there i had the two women out of the room and got it here no one but myself has seen it but you must see it too he raised the candle and the two men entered the room one of the spare bedrooms on the bed there was something moving under the cover of a blanket dr dennison paused for a moment and then flung the blanket partially back they did not remain in the room for more than a few seconds the moment they got outside dr dennison began to speak sir edric i would fain suggest somewhat to you there is no evil as sophocles hath it in his antigone for which man hath not found a remedy except it be death and here sir edric interrupted him in a husky voice downstairs dennison this is too near it was indeed passing strange when once the novelty of this occurrence had worn off dr dennison seemed no longer frightened he was calm academic interested in an unusual phenomenon but sir edric who was said in the village to fear nothing in earth or in heaven or hell was obviously much moved when they had got back to the dining room sir edric motioned the doctor to a seat now then he said i will hear you something must be done and tonight exceptional cases said dr dennison demand exceptional remedies well it lies there upstairs and is at our mercy we can let it live or placing one hand over the mouth and nostrils we can stop said sir edric this thing has so crushed and humiliated me that i can scarcely think but i recall that while i waited for you i fell upon my knees and prayed that god would save eve and as i confessed unto him more than i will ever confess unto man it seemed to me that it were ignoble to offer a price for his favor and i said that whatsoever punishment i had to bear i would bear it and whatsoever he called upon me to do i would do it and i made no conditions well now my punishment is of two kinds firstly my wife eve is dead and this i bear more easily because i know that now she is numbered with the company of god's saints and with them her pure spirit finds happier communion than with me i was not worthy of her and yet she would call my roughness by gentle pretty names she gloried dennison in the mere strength of my body and in the greatness of my stature and i am thankful that she never saw this this shame that has come upon the house for she was a proud woman with all her gentleness even as i was proud and bad until it pleased god this night to break me even to the dust and for my second punishment that too i must bear this thing that lies upstairs i will take and rear 
it is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh only if it be possible i will hide my shame so that no man but you shall know of it this is not possible you cannot keep a living being in this house unless it be known will not these women say where is the child sir edric stood upright his powerful hands linked before him his face working in agony but he was still resolute then if it must be known it shall be known the fault is mine if i had but done sooner what eve asked this would not have happened i will bear it sir edric did not be angry with me for if i did not say this then i should be but an ill counsellor and firstly do not use the word shame the ways of nature are past all explaining if a woman be frail and easily impressed and other circumstances concur then in some few rare cases a thing of this sort does happen if there be shame it is not upon you but upon nature to whom one would not lightly impute shame yet it is true that common and uninformed people might think that this shame was yours and herein lies the great trouble the shame would rest also on her memory then said sir edric in a low unfaltering voice this night for the sake of eve i will break my word and lose my own soul eternally about an hour afterwards sir edric and dr dennison left the house together the doctor carried a stable lantern in his hand sir edric bore in his arms something wrapped in a blanket they went through the long garden out into the orchard that skirts the north side of the park and then across a field to a small dark plantation known as hal's planting in the very heart of hal's planting there are some curious caves access to the innermost chamber of them is exceedingly difficult and dangerous and only possible to a climber of exceptional skill and courage as they returned from these caves sir edric no longer carried his burden the dawn was breaking and the birds began to sing could not they be quiet just for this morning said sir edric wearily there were but few people who were asked to attend the funeral of lady van crest and of the baby which it was said had only survived her by a few hours there were but three people who knew that only one body the body of lady van crest was really interred in that occasion these three were sir edric van crest dr dennison and a nurse whom it had been found expedient to take into their confidence during the next six years sir edric lived almost in solitude a life of great sanctity devoting much of his time to the education of the younger edric the child that he had by his first wife in the course of this time some strange stories began to be told and believed in the neighborhood with reference to hal's planting and the place was generally avoided when sir edric lay on his deathbed the windows of the chamber were open and suddenly through them came a low cry the doctor in attendance hardly regarded it supposing that it came from one of the owls in the trees outside 
but sir edric at the sound of it rose right up in bed before anyone could stay him and flinging up his arms cried wolves 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 then he fell forward on his face dead and four generations passed away two towards the latter end of the nineteenth century john marsh who was the oldest man in the village of Mansteth, could be prevailed upon to state what he recollected. His two sons supported him in his old age. He never felt the pinch of poverty, and he always had money in his pocket. But it was a settled principle with him that he would not pay for the pint of beer which he drank occasionally in the parlour of the stag. Sometimes Farmer Wythwaite paid for the beer. Sometimes it was Mr. Spicer from the post office. Sometimes the landlord of the stag himself would finance the old man's evening dissipation. In return, John Marsh was prevailed upon to state what he recollected. This he would do with great hardiness and strict impartiality, recalling the intemperance of a former Wythwaite, and the dishonesty of some ancestral spicer while he drank the beer of their direct descendants. He would tell you, with two tough old fingers crooked round the handle of the pewter that you had provided, how your grandfather was a poor thing, fit for nought but to break stains by Tarod's side. He was so disrespectful that it was believed that he spoke truth. He was particularly disrespectful when he spoke of that most devilish family, the Vancarests, and he never tired of recounting these stories that from generation to generation had grown up about them. It would be objected sometimes that the present Sir Edric, the last surviving member of the race, was a pleasant-spoken young man, with none of the family wildness and hot temper. It was for no sin of his that Hal's planting was haunted, a thing which every one in Mansteth and many beyond it most devoutly believed. John Marsh would hear no apology for him, nor for any of his ancestors. He recounted the prophecy that an old madwoman had made of the family before her strange death, and hoped fervently that he might live to see it fulfilled. The third baronet, as has already been told, had lived the latter part of his life after his second wife's death in peace and quietness. Of him John Marsh remembered nothing, of course, and could only recall the few fragments of information that had been handed down to him. He had been told that this Sir Edric, who had travelled a good deal, at one time kept wolves, intending to train them to serve as dogs. These wolves were not kept under proper restraint, and became a kind of terror to the neighborhood. Lady Vancarest, his second wife, had asked him frequently to destroy these beasts, but Sir Edric, although it was said that he loved his second wife even more than he hated the first, a vast obstinate when any of his whims were crossed, and put her off with promises. Then one day Lady Van Carest herself was attacked by the wolves. She was not bitten, but she was badly frightened. That filled Sir Edric with remorse, and when it was too late he went out into the yard where the wolves were kept and shot them all. A few months afterwards Lady Van Carest died in childbirth. 
It was a queer thing, John Marsh noted, that it was just at this time that Hal's planting began to get such a bad name. The fourth baronet was, John Marsh considered, the worse of the race. It was to him that the old madwoman had made her prophecy, an incident that Marsh himself had witnessed in his childhood and still vividly remembered. The baronet, in his old age, had been cast up by his vices on the shores of melancholy. Heavy-eyed, gray-haired, bent, he seemed to pass through life as in a dream. Every day he would go out on horseback, always at a walking pace, as though he were following the funeral of his past self. One night he was riding up the village street, as this old woman came down it. Her name was Anne Ruthers. She had a kind of reputation in the village, and although all said that she was mad, many of her utterances were remembered, and she was treated with respect. It was growing dark, and the village street was almost empty, but just at the lower end was the usual group of men by the door of the stag, dimly illuminated by the light that came through the quaint windows of the old inn. They glanced at Sir Edric as he rode slowly past them, taking no notice of their respectful salutes. At the upper end of the street there were two persons. One was Anne Ruthers, a tall, gaunt old woman, her head wrapped in a shawl. The other was John Marsh. He was then a boy of eight, and he was feeling somewhat frightened. He had been on an expedition to a distant and fetid pond, and in the black mud and clay about its borders he had discovered live newts. He had three of them in his pocket, and this was to some extent a joy to him. But his joy was dampened by his knowledge that he was coming home much too late, and would probably be chastised in consequence. He was unable to walk fast or to run, because Anne Ruthers was immediately in front of him, and he dared not pass her, especially at night. She walked on until she met Sir Edric, and then, standing still, she called him by name. He pulled in his horse and raised his heavy eyes to look at her. Then, in loud, clear tones, she spoke to him, and John Marsh heard and remembered every word that she said. It was her prophecy of the end of the Vancrests. Sir Edric never answered a word. When she had finished, he rode on, while she remained standing there, her eyes fixed on the stars above her. John Marsh dared not pass the mad woman. He turned round and walked back, keeping close to Sir Edric's horse. Quite suddenly, without a word of warning, as if in a moment of ungovernable irritation, Sir Edric wheeled his horse round and struck the boy across the face with his switch. On the following morning, John Marsh, or rather his parents, received a handsome solatium in coin of the realm, but sixty-five years afterwards he had not forgiven that blow, and still spoke of the Van Crests as a most devilish family, still hoped and prayed that he might see the prophecy fulfilled. He would relate, too, the death of Anne Ruthers, which occurred either later on the night of her prophecy or early on the following day. She would often roam about the country all night, and on this particular night she left the main road to wander over the Van Christ lands, where trespassers, especially at night, 
were not welcomed. But no one saw her, and it seemed that she made her way to a part where no one was likely to see her, for none of the keepers would have entered Hal's planting by night. Her body was found there at noon on the following day, lying under the tall bracken, dead, but without any mark of violence upon it. It was considered that she had died in a fit. This naturally added to the ill repute of Hal's planting. The woman's death caused considerable sensation in the village. Sir Edric sent a message to the married sister with whom she had lived, saying that he wished to pay all the funeral expenses. This offer, as John Marsh recalled with satisfaction, was refused. Of the last two baronets he had but little to tell. The fifth baronet was credited with the family temper, but he conducted himself in a perfectly conventional way and did not seem in the least to belong to romance. He was a good man of business and devoted himself to making up as far as he could for the very extravagant expenditure of his predecessors. His son, the present Sir Edric, was a fine young fellow and popular in the village. Even John Marsh could find nothing to say against him. Other people in the village were interested in him. It was said that he had chosen a wife in London, a Miss Gurdon, and would shortly be back to see that Mansteth Hall was put in proper order for her before his marriage at the close of the season. Modernity kills ghostly romance. It was difficult to associate this modern and handsome Sir Edric, bright and spirited, a good sportsman and a good fellow, with the doom that had been foretold for the Vancrest family. He himself knew the tradition and laughed at it. He wore clothes made by a London tailor, looked healthy, smiled cheerfully, and in vain attempt to shame his own headkeeper, had himself spent a night alone in Hal's planting. This last was used by Mr. Spicer in argument. Who would ask John Marsh what he had made of it? John Marsh replied contemptuously that it was nout. It was not so that the Vancrest family was to end, but when the thing, whatever it was, that lived in Hal's planting left it and came up to the house, to Mansteth Hall itself, then one would see the end of the Vancrests. So Anne Ruthers had prophesied. Sometimes Mr. Spicer would ask the pertinent question, how did John Marsh know that there really was anything in Hal's planting? This he asked less because he disbelieved than because he wished to draw forth an account of John's personal experiences. These were given in great detail, but they did not amount to very much. One night John Marsh had been taken by business. Sir Edric Keepers would have called the business by hard names into the neighborhood of Hal's planting. He had there been suddenly startled by a cry and had run away as though he were running for his life. That was all he could tell about the cry. It was the kind of cry to make a man lose his head and run. And then it always happened that John Marsh was urged by his companions to enter Hell's planting himself and discover what was there. John pursed his thin lips together and hinted that that also might be done one of these days. Whereupon Mr. Spicer looked across his pipe to Farmer Winthwaite and smiled significantly. 
Shortly before Sir Edric's return from London, the attention of Mansteth was once more directed to Hal's planting, but not by any supernatural occurrence. Quite suddenly, on a calm day, two trees there fell with a crash. There were caves in the centre of the plantation, and it seemed as if the roof of some big chamber in these caves had given way. They talked it over one night in the parlour of the stag. There was water in these caves. Farmer Winthwaite knew it. And he expected a further subsidence. If the whole thing collapsed, what then? I, said John Marsh, he rose from his chair and pointed in the direction of the hall with his thumb. What then? He walked across to the fire, looked at it meditatively for a moment, and then spat in it. A truly wonderful old man said Farmer Winthwaite, as he watched him. End of Section 9